It's my favorite time of year when so many houses in my neighborhood have pumpkins and gourds or giant spiders and cobwebs out front. It's also my favorite because of all the autumn gear I can start rocking. If you're under five foot eight like me and looking for new seasonal men's clothes, get your look at Ash and Erie. Everything I've gotten from them fits my body to perfection. And I'm walking around the neighborhood these days and this new soft and comfy crew sweater and some fresh denim. And it's given me a bit of a strut, I gotta say. There's an impressively accurate fitting chart and the team is quick to respond with any questions you have. Go to ashandeerie.com slash othermen and use the promo code OTHERMEN, one word, for 15% off your order at Ash and Erie and get your sweater weather strut going. In honor and remembering Dr. Martin Luther King, whose birthday we celebrate this weekend, let's start with number 579, 579 in the hymnal, and you're invited to stand as you wish. One weekend this January, I went down to Jackson, Mississippi, and attended a service at a Mennonite church. The congregation was small, but with mixed ages and races. I sat in the front to watch and hear Pastor Hugh do his thing. Thank you so much. I love it when we all bring our gifts. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, these words are found. My first trip to Jackson came from a question I had had since I was a boy. Can a priest say the F word? Not just priests, but like all clergy and spiritual leaders. I mean, cussing is awesome, but are they allowed to? According to Hugh, the answer is yes. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. I'm an adult now, and yes, I've known that clergy are human beings, and I figured that they do indeed cuss. But I still feel self-conscious swearing around spiritual leaders, and I kept thinking about that. If someone who leads a congregation doesn't have a place to cuss, and people around them won't cuss, where do they go to cuss? But the bigger question was... Who do they spend time with that doesn't expect them to be devout 24-7? How does a pastor go about finding a friend? And this is what led me to Hugh, a Mississippi man of the cloth who confirmed what I was wondering. Clergy is like the loneliest gig ever because it is your job to build a community that you're not allowed to be part of. You can't let your guard down. You got to lead and hold space for others. You got to quell that urge to scream F-bombs. A constant caregiving role to a group of people. It's not something most of us deal with in our day-to-day -day life. And who would be the friend that could understand all of that? Well, maybe it's another community caregiver. And for Hugh, it's a Baptist minister from North Carolina named Brian who also knows how hard it can be to make friends as not only an adult, 
but also as a spiritual leader. There's sort of a joke that Jesus' miracle that nobody ever talks about is they had 12 close friends in his 30s. And over a long winter weekend, I would witness what would be my first spiritual reunion. Welcome, Brian. Welcome back. Mark, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Amen. Amen. I'm Mark Bayan, and you're listening to Other Men Need Someone to Let Them Drop F-Bombs Even If God Is Listening. Brian and Hugh have been friends for 10 years, and I'd been talking to them for months. But the first time I officially met them in the flesh was on a Friday afternoon at the airport in Jackson. Here's the thing you need to know about these two friends. They don't hold back in physical affection. There was a long embrace, lots of head caressing, kisses on foreheads and cheeks. So good to see you. Yeah. It wasn't just an embrace. It was a scene. Brian is kind of a preppy silver fox. Wavy head of hair, a groomed salt and pepper beard, hip glasses. And Hugh? You shaved. Yeah. Well, I'm like equally fuzzy all over. Right, you're like a peach. Yeah. <laughs> a bit more of a bulldog. Tall, wide, bald, goateed, with really beautiful, piercing blue eyes. Hugh looks like Brian's bodyguard. And it's for this reason that Brian brought Hugh to the car dealership when he had to negotiate buying his latest car. Sometimes you need a guy with a 19-inch neck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which was hysterical, partly because you're not that great of a negotiator either. You're just look intimidating. And also, we landed in one of the many times in our friendship where people aren't exactly sure what our relationship is. Right. They thought that you were my partner. Oh, yeah. That happens to us fairly regularly. For the record, Brian is gay and married. Hugh is straight, also married. And yes, there's a tenderness there that feels rare between most men. I think part of that comes from what they do for a living. Their job is to hold space for other people. And when they're together as friends, that skill seeps in. They are very present for each other. But it's something else. And it's what drew me to Brian and Hugh in the first place. When they're together or talking about the other person, it's almost like they're making up for lost time. Like being super thankful after years of searching for a place to fit in and connect. Brian and Hugh met in 2010 at a big event for religious leaders. After Hugh referenced Harvey Milk and Johnny Cash in his talk, Brian was like, I really got to meet this guy. They talked, made plans for coffee, and met soon after that at a nearby Borders Cafe. They talk about that moment with such reverence. I really do wonder what happened that afternoon, because there was something that was very strange in that 
first afternoon. And neither of them, even as grown men who lead other folks about taking the right next steps, knew how to take their next steps into becoming friends. After we hung up, Brian calls, and he's like, what you up to? And I said, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, I just thought I'd call and chat. I said, oh, there's a pause. He's like, do straight guys not do that? I said, well, I don't really do that. And he's like, okay, see you soon. <laughs> One of us said it, yeah. yeah. And there's a fairly early admission of, like, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Brian was in his late 30s. His 17-year relationship was ending. And he looked around and said, I don't really have any friends. Hugh had gone from the Marines to a corporate life, to a religious calling, and a life of service. With all that moving between different jobs, he says he was hungry for real friendships. And both Hugh and Brian weren't good at doing the typical guy stuff. The typical entrees for male friendship are not there for me. I don't work in an office environment. I'm not going to the bar after work, kicking back some cold ones with the guys. If you went to Ole Miss and love football, like, I know how to mess that relationship up. (laughs) I also wonder if some of the permission giving around the sort of awkwardness of saying like, hey, I actually want to develop a friendship with you also had something to do with it being a gay-straight friendship. They said they were searching for an authentic connection. Maybe being gay and straight allowed them to be more direct about what they wanted, which they had perhaps learned how to ask for differently. Not only has Brian had far more formal education than I have, Brian has had far more therapy than I have. And so, I'm a gay Baptist minister in North Carolina. I've had a lot of therapy. <laughs> and now that they found that authentic friend, they're really intentional about calls and making sure they spend time together. Especially now that Hugh had moved from Raleigh to Jackson. This weekend was one of the few that they've been able to make happen in the two years since Hugh left. Two friends reuniting on Martin Luther King Day weekend. Not just two friends, two preacher men. Which is a profound point of connection between these two guys. They relate. Being a religious leader can be isolating. It's a, oh, thank God, you totally get it. There is a loneliness that comes to it. If you're committed to being with vulnerable people, during vulnerable times in their lives. I always said the longer I did that work, the harder it was to have friends with people who didn't do that work. You've certainly done that for me Mm -hmm. several times when I get into stuff and going like, okay, I just had somebody come in and tell me my story. Right. And I need to, I need some space to do that. So I go and take a lap and call you. That's often the case. Before I came down to Jackson, they told me what to expect when spending a weekend with them. A church service, si, claro, I figured that would happen. Long discussions over coffee, moving to a lot of different locations because they both self-labeled as having ADHD and can't stay in one place for too long, and a must whenever they're together. Looking at antiques. 
So, Brian, Hugh, and I went to a flea market. I'm going to need a system. So for me, I go up and down and then do this room and then go to the next room and because otherwise I just wander <laughs> And this is when I really started to witness Brian and Hugh's unique connection. A few things pop up when rolling around a flea market with these two guys. They've got their own quiet comedic rhythm. I feel we're going to get terribly boring, Mark. We mostly just wander around and ramble. This is what we do. This is the rich stuff. Well, then you're about to make a fortune. (laughs) They both know their evangelical history. The Gospel Truth series. Armageddon and then World Peace. They're vintage evangelizing tracks. Here's a pamphlet about how you're going to hell unless you do what I tell you. (laughs) They tease each other. He had the picture of the man praying over the bread, right? I can't find one of those anywhere. I've got my granddaddy's. Well, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't help me. Though. <laughs> it doesn't help you. And something I didn't pinpoint earlier. There's like this southern charm and shorthand that's really delightful to be around. So, do right. you get your name and number? Yes, ma'am. I've got my granddaddy's and it's hanging in my dining room. And it's it's amazing to me the people that come through our house that all say like, oh, my grandparents had that painting there. So. And just like at the airport, I was privy to all of these gestures between these two friends that were almost profound in their ease and comfort. Hugh would briefly put his arm around Brian. Brian would cup the back of Hugh's head and give him a slight caress. The level of tenderness was almost profound. And then, just like they predicted, it was time to go to another location. Four o'clock. All right, what's for early dinner? I don't know. We can go to Pig and Pine if you want barbecue. Can we Always. barbecue? Yeah. We went for barbecue, which I was very pleased about. And this was happening on a Saturday afternoon. Tomorrow, we'd be heading to Hughes Church. And he had some homework to do. Do you have your sermon done, Hugh? I need to redo like the last 10% of it, but I'll do that in the morning. I haven't figured out really how to wrap it up yet. I have two stories, and just say amen. Sit down. <laughs> Go and do that likewise. We all just have one sermon. That we just, we just, we all kind of have one sermon that we just kind of <laughs> rework in different ways. And I'm learning that the Bible gets oddly specific. So tomorrow's gospel passage is in the Book of John, first chapter, where. John the Baptist says, you know, behold the Lamb of God. It was about 4 o'clock yeah. in the afternoon. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And so... It's really funny. They, they put a timestamp on it. Right. It's yeah. this very weird verse. This is what are you looking for? And then he says, where are you staying? And then he says, oh, it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. right. <laughs> I don't know if Hugh feels the pressure of leading during MLK weekend versus other nationally reflective times during the year trying to choose the words in scripture that will land with his mission of social justice. Brian and Hugh mentioned this idea of being of the Southern prophetic tradition, using their platform to fight for justice and for others, not in spite of where they're from, but because of where they're from. It's also what gets a spiritual man like Hugh to start cussing. Nurse for the country scapegoats the South anyway. 
right? Like, I mean, we're their peace offering so that they get to be racist as fuck because they're at least, well, I'm at least I'm not wearing a bath sheet down in Mississippi, right? Or bed sheet down in Mississippi. And so they don't have to deal with their own shit because, like, we're a convenient whipping boy. It feels like this has emerged as a theme in our conversations around our love and complicated relationship with the South. It certainly keeps showing back up. Also, the South was the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement. Right. <laughs> like, right. also, the, the work on racial justice um, continues to be happening in the South. Right. Like, also, that has always been, we there's looked, always been a progressive. We looked around at what was going on in our community, and we said, fuck that, and we stood up, right? right? So, like, fuck you and your, like, enclave up north where you're going to judge us, and you're not even going to fix your own shit. I'm the first to own the shadows of the South. I mean, we live in a haunted landscape. I just get pissed when we carry that burden for the nation in a way that is uh, gets used as a way for other people not to do their work. Right. Absolutely. And it's not the only story of us. I mean, like, yes, that's the story of us. And also the resistance is the story of us. And then just like that, like on some sort of schedule, it was time to move on to the next place. Where are we going? We're going home or are we going to, do you want to go to like a coffee shop? It's true what they warned me about. Coffee, lots of moving around. But their conversations were divine. I mean that in terms of being both delightful and theologian, which was good because Hugh still had a sermon to prepare for the next day. I think that's core, that's what most ministry is, is just storytelling and then inviting people into living into other ways of seeing their story. It's just right. It's remembering stories right. and, re- and reframing and reconnecting them. I'm not a good preacher. There's a joke in preaching circles that you have three points of prayer and a poem, right? And someone said that Hugh has three stories and a point. Um, and that's often true. Uh, it's rare I have less than two stories in, in a sermon. On Sunday morning, we went to Hugh's church. He gave some caveats like, it might be a little run down, might be water leaking, you never know. It wasn't that bad. But it definitely didn't automatically look like a church from the outside. It looked like an old TV station because it was an old TV station, now serving a portion of the Mennonite community in Metropolitan Jackson. This morning, we ask God that you bless the words that will come out of his mouth. I sat in the front with Brian and the majority of the parishioners behind me. Eventually, we get to Hugh's sermon. If you will turn in your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of John, the first chapter beginning with the 29th verse. In the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, these words are found. The next day, I have to admit Jesus that I usually tune out a bit during the middle portion of sermons. Once it gets past personal anecdotes and moves into scripture, I'm somewhere else. But I was really paying attention this time. It was like inside baseball, like, oh, I heard him talk about this yesterday. And it was almost like visiting the common language that Hugh and Brian share together. They came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. There was that four o'clock mention. The real highlight, though, was watching Hugh be Hugh. I love that story. 
Because the question really isn't, what is the world like around us? The question is, what are we looking for? Now, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. It's a day we celebrate the life of a man who asked us to be more than we are. Who believed that we could do hard things. Who dreamed big dreams and asked us to dream them too. I couldn't see Brian in my peripheral view, but I could feel him nodding along. In fact, I imagined how Brian watched Hugh 10 years earlier do this in front of an audience and sat there thinking, this guy should be my friend. And he took that leap of faith, and then together they did the work to build a friendship. The world is filled with people who want to write like Dr. King. But what the world needs, what our community needs, What our city desperately needs is people willing to stand up and do the work like Dr. King did. That's right. That's right. Because at the end of the day, what changes the world around us is not fiery speeches or giant marches, but looking for the world that we're looking for. And then when we can't find it, setting about the determined, faithful, plodding, often boring work of building it. And when we've done that, we can invite those people who are looking for that new world to come and see. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Pastor Hugh. Please rise for our closing song. I'm not someone who really sings in church, but I tried to join in my own way. During the closing song, I felt Brian's hand on my shoulder. I put my hand on his hand. People show up on Sundays in churches all over the place and look to their leaders to help make sense of the absurdity of life for them. To hear them say, here are some ways to do right. I kept thinking of Hugh's go out there and do the work sermon and how I saw that reflected in the friendship between these two men, the practicing what they preachness of it. You know, got to take action to get what we want. And there were many examples during that weekend between Brian and Hugh of how to be a good friend. But of all the things I witnessed, it was the comfort of their physical care with each other that really landed somewhere in my heart. The physical affection that you guys share with each other is also very, unfortunately, I think it's very unique. People often ask me, are you a hugger or whatever? And I, my standard line is it's the first three letters of my name. But early on, there were a couple of times where I think one time, like, you put your arm around me or whatever, and, like, my instinct was to not pull away, but, like, butch up, Mm. right? Because I I remember being conscious of wanting to make sure you felt safe with me. Mm. I do remember being conscious of an our friendship that you you didn't pull away from me. 
I, re- I mean, I remember once fairly early on, you kind of doing the thing that you do when you hold the back of my head and you kind of pull my head to your chest mm-hmm. um, when I was hugging you at something. I was, I'm sure it was when I was going through the divorce. Uh, I think all relationships that matter take work. And I think you were the first to name that, like, we needed to be intentional about this or else it would... We lose each other. We lose it, yeah. yeah. While Brian is not the person you want on your side in a bar fight, um, <laughs> Brian... It depends on what kind of fight it's going to be. <laughs> um, but I can tell you from experience, when your wife is in a hospital, Brian's the person you want with you. Or when the chips are down, Brian's the person you want with you. One of my last memories of the weekend is a moment that probably only I can hear. It wasn't easy to record the quick and quiet moments of affection between Brian and Hugh. But in the car, my mic was pointed at Hugh's headrest as Brian cupped his hand on the back of Hugh's head and gave him a loving scratch and caress. To be honest, I kept aiming my microphone to grab these little moments. It's very quiet, but that's what made it so striking. There is something spiritual about witnessing comfort and stillness between two people. Especially when I know how much these two men spent their lives longing for a friend. And in the midst of 10 years of coffee shop hangs, visits, the antique shopping, the calls, were the moments, the hard moments in life, where two men, who often had to carry the weight of others, were able to do that for each other. We often come to people like Hugh and Brian to help us prepare for what comes next. And I wondered what they felt their friendship would look like in the afterlife. Being, like, small town boys looking up at the at the sky and being just so fully present with each other. Yeah, that would be the thing that would hold on to for, for just feeling so totally seen and known and loved. So often we end up at a coffee shop. And we'll just sit and talk and drink coffee. But like Brian sitting across the table from me with a cup of coffee in front of him. Whatever my conception of heaven looks like, that scene is going on there. That space feels safe. And and a better person than I would say sacred. But we're both attention deficit and we get easily distracted. So like 45 minutes or so in, one of us will say, we need to change venues, but we'll just go to another coffee shop. (laughs) Even in the afterlife, you gotta move around.
This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Mark Bagan. Our season's lead producer is Caitlin May Burke. And our producers are Ben Goldberg and Rebecca Seidel. Rebecca is our lead engineer. The associate producer for this episode was Sierra Franco, with story editing by Sierra and Caitlin. Sochio Tapia is our intern. Valentina the Pigeon is our production mascot this season. If you want to see how a bird whispers sweet nothings, go to our Other Men Need Help Instagram. Original music this season comes from the Fulton Street Music Group, composed by Ed Duran and produced by Alex Fulton. Additional instrumentation comes from Ryan Chamberlain and Liam Moore. Additional original music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Season 3 illustrations done by the talented hands of Carmela Caldar. Special thanks to Alyssa and Tom Wilkinson, Michael McCarthy, Maggie Van Dorn, Chris Hoke, John Wasson, John Stark, Carl Adair, Monica Navarro, Hugh and Renee Hollowell, and Brian Ammons. And take 20 seconds right now to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. If you take a screenshot and send it to us, we'll mail you an Other Men button. Send it to us at othermenneedhelp at gmail.com. We will be back in a few weeks with another episode. And until then, adios, ciao, ciao, hallelujah. Was I working at the hot dog cart when you met me? No, the hot dog cart was done. Okay. You had the you had the space down in the in the midnight place. You funded his early work by selling hot dogs outside the gay bar. <laughs> outside, like the oonch 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 bar, right? And across the street from the porn shop. Yeah. So I don't know what I make like ten dollars an hour or something. Plus we got tips. I have a 19-inch neck and a furry face, right? And so. Uh, they did, and the drag queens liked me, mm-hmm. and I would flirt shamelessly because, like you know, it's performance art, and, and so I'd be like, "I bet you want a regular. I don't think you can handle a foot long." And they would just, "Oh, honey," and they put a twenty dollar bill in the tip truck. <laughs>